Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for standing by and welcome to the Ken Ross Gold Corporation fourth quarter 2021 results conference call and webcast. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. After the speaker presentation, there will be a question and answer session. To ask a question during the session, you will need to press star 1 on your telephone. Please be advised that today's conference call is being recorded. If you require any further assistance, please press star 0. I would now like to hand the conference over to your speaker today, Chris Lichtenheld, Vice President, Investor Relations. Thank you. Please go ahead. Thank you and good morning. With us today, we have Paul Rowlandson, President and CEO, and from the Kinross Senior Leadership Team, Andrea Freebro, Paul Smory, and Jeff Gold. Before we begin, I would also like to state that we will be making forward-looking statements during this presentation. For a complete discussion of risks and uncertainties, which may lead to actual results different from estimates contained in our forward-looking information, please refer to page two of this presentation. Our news release dated February 16, 2022. The MBNA for the period ended December 31, 2021. And our most recently filed AIF, all of which are available on our website. I will now turn the call over to Paul. Thanks, Chris, and thank you all for joining us today. I want to start by acknowledging and thanking our employees and host communities for their hard work and perseverance through another challenging year during the global pandemic. Reflecting back on 2021, while we faced some challenges, it was also a year of accomplishments that we are proud of. We produced approximately 2.1 million ounces of gold. We reported a net increase of 2.7 million ounces in total reserves. We finalized our agreement with the government of Mauritania. We repaid $500 million of senior notes. We returned $250 million to our shareholders through dividends and share buybacks. We advanced a number of milestones within our project pipeline. And lastly, we announced the addition of a high quality asset to our portfolio with Great Bear. As we look ahead, our operations remain well positioned to deliver higher production and we expect to generate substantial free cash flow over the coming years. We are proud of our long history of meeting or exceeding guidance. However, the current environment of COVID and inflation have made predicting the future more difficult. We continue to monitor these factors closely as pandemic-related disruptions coupled with the rising cost of everything is affecting our operating and capital costs. You will hear Andrea and Paul speak more about the impact inflation is having on our business later on. Before turning the call over to Andrea, I will comment briefly on upcoming milestones, our guidance, and our ESG performance and climate change strategy. Looking ahead to 2022, we are well positioned to deliver on our key milestones. The Tassius Mill has periodically reached 21,000 tons per day this month and is on track to reach this level on a sustained basis by the end of this quarter. The Lacoipa Restart Project is advancing well and is expected to begin producing in the first quarter. At Round Mountain, we have added Phase S to reserves and continue to work through the optimization study. During the third quarter, we expect to complete the feasibility study for our Udinsk project in Russia. And lastly, we expect the Great Bear acquisition to close in the coming days, and we are working on an integration plan to ensure a smooth transition after closing. Moving on to our guidance, last night we updated our forward guidance and extended our outlook to include 2024. We also reiterated our confidence in our long-term production outlook, expecting average annual production of at least 2.5 million ounces over the rest of the decade. 
Our production outlook going forward represents substantial growth from levels realized over the past few years. We have slightly refined the midpoints of our 2022 and 2023 production guidance. The modest adjustments to 2022 and 2023 can be mostly explained by a deferral of production in the short term due to mine life extensions and newly approved projects, and to a lesser extent, the impact of Omicron late last year and early this year. Both of these factors are a deferral of production and not lost ounces. With our growth projects ramping up over the coming months, we expect our production to improve towards the second half of the year. As a result, our per ounce cost and cash flow metrics are also expected to improve in the back half of the year. Overall, the reduction in costs and the increase in production is expected to generate substantial free cash flow in the coming years. Given our strong outlook, we plan to continue with our return of capital programs this year. As a responsible miner, ESG is something that we've always focused on and remains an integral part of our business. It begins with the safety of our employees, which is our first priority. It is also about generating sustainable benefits for our host countries and communities. And this past year, we continue to make meaningful contributions during the pandemic, including supporting local vaccination efforts. On governance, our strong practices were once again recognized as Kinross was the top-ranked gold mining company in the Global Mail's annual corporate governance survey. As it relates to the environment, and more specifically climate change, we are also continuing to take action. Last night, we released the details of our climate change strategy, introducing our target to achieve a 30% reduction in intensity of scope one and two emissions by 2030. The development of a solar power plant at Tassius and the recent signing of an agreement to purchase renewable power at La Coipa illustrate that we are always looking for opportunities to improve. It is worth noting, however, that approximately 90% of our current scope one and two emissions come from the electricity we consume and from the fleets that we deploy. We are committed to our targets and look forward to working with our host governments and equipment manufacturers to help achieve these goals. Before turning the call over to Andrea, I would be remiss not to comment on the tragic loss of life, property damage, and community impact of the contractor truck explosion in Ghana approximately 140 kilometers from our mine. Such tragedies reinforce the need for the mining sector and its supply chain to relentlessly focus on safety and as a strong reminder of the importance of keeping our communities safe. The major mining companies with operations in Ghana are working closely with the mining chamber and the government to support the community relief and reconstruction efforts. In addition to other relief initiatives, Kinross has donated $1 million towards the relief fund created by the government and has asked other mining companies to consider similar contributions. I will now turn the call over to Andrea for a more detailed review of our financial results. Thanks, Paul. I'll start with financial highlights from the quarter and the full year then provide an overview of our balance sheet and comment on our outlook for operating costs and CapEx. Fourth quarter production of 488,000 ounces and full year production of nearly 2.1 million ounces were lower than last year as a result of the temporary suspension at Tassius. Our full year production cost of sales of $828 per ounce and all in sustaining costs of $1,138 per ounce were both higher than last year due to lower production and inflation. Fourth quarter free cash flow was an outflow of $100 million. However, this includes $160 million of cash outflow related to changes in working capital. Adjusting out these working capital changes, we generated free cash flow 
of approximately $60 million. As noted in our news release last night, we recorded a non-cash after-tax write-down of $106 million related to Bald Mountain during the fourth quarter. The write-down was due to lower expected recoveries from the Vantage heat leach pad, which affected the book value of the heat leach inventory and related property plant and equipment in the south area. The issue is isolated to the south area and does not relate to the north area of the mine where mining is expected to focus for the coming years. Moving to our balance sheet, our financial position remains strong. However, as expected, our cash position decreased slightly from the previous quarter and we finished the year with $532 million of cash. Our net debt at the end of the year was approximately $1.1 billion and our trailing 12-month net debt to EBITDA ratio increased from just under 0.5 tons at the end of Q3 to just under 0.8 tons. Upon closing of the Great Bear transaction, we expect our net debt to EBITDA ratio to increase for the first half of this year, and then by the end of the year, decline back to below one, assuming gold prices around today's levels. We spent an additional $50 million on share repurchases in December for a total of $100 million since we launched the program in the second half of 2021. This is in addition to our regular dividend payments totaling $150 million during the year for a total return of capital of $250 million. Looking forward, there are a few items that we expect to impact our cash flow in the first quarter, which is typical for us. One, subsequent to year-end, we made our usual annual tax payment in Brazil, which was $73 million related to 2021. Two, our regular interest payment, which is expected to be in the range of $40 million. And lastly, the collection of an additional $60 million related to tax insurance recovery. These net cash outflows, combined with the fact that Q1 production is expected to be the lowest of the year, will impact our cash generation in Q1. However, with the planned growth to 2.65 million ounces of production for the full year, we do anticipate generating significant free cash flow over the course of the year. Turning to our guidance, note that all figures I reference are within our typical range of plus or minus 5%. As Paul noted, our outlook remains largely intact. However, we've made some adjustments to account for recent and evolving issues such as Omicron and inflation. We've factored in what we expect for inflation in 2022, and we expect the benefits of our production growth to roughly offset these increases. However, forecasting inflation beyond the current year is more difficult. With our updated three-year outlook, we've provided further visibility out to 2024, which is ex expected to be another strong year. Production cost of sales during 2022 is expected to be approximately $830 per ounce, which is below our Q4 cost and in line with full-year costs reported for 2021. In terms of the cost profile throughout 2022, with the first quarter production expected to be the lowest of the year, we anticipate our Q1 costs per ounce to be higher than our full year average. For example, Parica 2 costs are expected to peak in the range of $1,000 per ounce due to lower production before returning to more recent levels for the rest of the year. At Tassius, costs are expected to decline over the year as production ramps up. All in sustaining costs during 2022 is expected to be approximately $1,130 per ounce, which is also in line with full year 2021. Looking further ahead, we expect our production cost of sales and all-in sustaining costs per ounce to decrease from 2022 levels driven by higher production and lower cost ounces from Lacoipa and Tassius. However, this excludes any impact from inflation beyond 2022, which we will incorporate into our forecast as necessary as we get closer to those years. With respect to CapEx, we plan to spend about a billion dollars in 2022, which includes $50 million for ESG-related projects, the most significant of which solar power at Tassius. CapEx is expected to remain around 2022 levels over the next couple of years. As we get into each year, we will update our estimates to reflect the current cost environment and any other changes. With respect to exploration spend, we've increased our budget to $130 million to follow up on areas of success in 2021. However, this excludes exploration at Great Bear. 
We're still finalizing our plans, but we expect this could be in the range of 50 to $60 million. To summarize, our outlook remains strong and we expect our financial position to continue to strengthen over time as we generate significant free cash flow. We remain in an excellent position to continue with our return of capital program. With that, I'll now turn the call over to Paul Smorin. Thanks, Andrea. This morning I'll provide key updates on our operations and projects, discuss our production outlook, and share some highlights from our reserves and resources update and exploration results. Before that, it's important to note we continue to manage the evolving challenges presented by COVID. And while our operations continue to track well against our longer-term plans, we experienced some disruptions beginning late last year and into early part of this year related to the Omicron variant. While the severity of the cases has been very low, we saw increased absenteeism, which impacted productivity at certain sites. As Paul mentioned, this has been reflected in our 2022 production guidance, which I will discuss shortly. With respect to our plans and projects going forward, while we do our best to mitigate the effects of COVID and inflation, we are not immune to these global challenges and therefore the timing and results of our outlook is subject to change. Looking back on 2021, I'd like to start with an update at Tazius. The restart of the mill went as planned and we expect to produce more than 600,000 ounces per annum over the next several years. During the fourth quarter, we produced 15,000 ounces as expected while replenishing inventory on carbon and towards the end of the quarter, the mill achieved pre-fire throughput rates of 18,000 tons per day. And as Paul has mentioned, we've had a few days with 21,000 tons already. The mining rate improved in the fourth quarter. However, Omicron-related absenteeism has somewhat hindered progress in sustaining these rates. These issues are now subsiding, and we expect to largely catch up on mining during 2022. Moving on to the 24K project, the first phase to expand to 21,000 tons per day is now 98% complete and we expect the project to finish under budget despite challenging conditions presented during the pandemic. We expect to reach 21,000 tons per day on a sustained basis by the end of the first quarter as planned. The second phase of the project is also advancing well with procurement of all major equipment complete and on track to reach 24,000 tons per day by mid-2023. Regarding our production outlook, I'd like to provide some additional context on some of the changes. We previously guided to production range with a midpoint of 2.7 million ounces in 2022 and have adjusted that to 2.65 million ounces plus minus 5%. This 50,000 ounce change can be explained roughly in equal parts by the impact of Omicron and lower expected production from the vantage pad at Bald Mountain. As Paul mentioned, growth profile for 2022 is weighted towards the back half of the year as Lacoipa and Tazius will be ramping up. In addition, Paracatus production is expected to increase in the second half of the year as grades improve. First quarter grades of Paracatus are expected to be the lowest of the year as we plan on processing lower grade stockpile material while mining activities focus on stripping. For 2023, we previously guided a production midpoint of 2.9 million ounces and have adjusted this to 2.8 million. There are a number of puts and takes across the portfolio, but this adjustment can be largely explained by three factors. First, we've resequenced the mine plans at Kupal and Chirano to accommodate mine life extensions. Second, last year we made value-add decisions at Lacoipa and Bald Mountain that resulted in a deferral of production. At Lacoipa, we extended the mine life with the addition of Peren. The plan is to blend Peren ore with Phase 7 ore for optimal performance in the mill, which is expected to lower the feed grade in 2023, leading to a deferral of approximately 40,000 ounces. However, this phase of Peren is expected to add approximately 200,000 ounces to life of mine production and extend Lacoipa's mine life from 2024 to 2026. At Bald Mountain, we approved extensions at a few of the North Area pits, which resulted in a resequencing of the mine plan, leading to a deferral of 30,000 ounces in 2023, but adding 60,000 ounces to total production. Lastly, as noted last year, the wall mitigation efforts at Round Mountain deferred the high production years due to additional stripping requirements. While the impact of this deferral was within our plus minus 5% range around the time of guidance, taking with these other developments, an update to our midpoint was warranted. Looking up to 2024, we expect our existing operations to support another strong year with production of 2.6 million ounces. Notably, this ex excludes Mancho, which we continue to advance and could ultimately contribute modestly to 2024 production. Moving now to our reserves and resources, we are pleased to have reported a net addition of 2.7 million ounces to proven and probable reserves compared with 2020, 
taking total reserves up to approximately 33 million ounces while increasing our reserve grade by 4%. The biggest contributor to the increase was Udensk, where we successfully converted 3 million ounces from resources to reserves with the completion of our PFS during the fourth quarter. Additionally, Round Mound added, added approximately 800,000 ounces net of depletion, mostly due to phase S. Elsewhere in the portfolio, we were able to offset depletion at Fort Knox with a contribution of approximately 200,000 ounces from the Gill Satellite Project and added over 300,000 ounces at Lobo Marte with the completion of the feasibility study. Measured and indicated resources declined from approximately 32 million ounces at the end of 2020 to 29 million ounces at the end of 2021. And this decrease is mainly due to reserve conversions, partially offset by increases at Chirano, Lacoipa, and Lobo Marte. Next, I want to provide a brief update on the ongoing optimization work at Round Mountain. Starting with Phase S, we have been very encouraged by the work and, as I just mentioned, have converted this phase to reserves and are now working on how to sequence it into the mine plan. With respect to Phase W, the ongoing geotechnical work has introduced a potential need for shallower slopes over a more extensive area than previously identified, which may affect Round Mountain's annual level of production post-2024. At Phase X, we've had very encouraging drill results. In fact, four of our best holes last year across the company were at Phase X, which confirmed continuity of several structural domains. As a result of these new developments, the optimization study is now evaluating additional alternatives, which include a modified open pit sequence for phases W and S, and the potential for underground mining for portions of Phase W leading into Phase X. An early stage scenario for underground mining proportions of phase W could potentially benefit the economics of phase X and could also reduce capital intensity, as well as our greenhouse gas emissions, compared to an open pit scenario with a shallower wall angle. These new considerations will require additional time to work through, and we now expect the optimization study to be completed in the second half rather than the first. Turning now to exploration, I will discuss some highlights from last year and areas of focus for this year. During the past year, we completed over 230,000 meters of drilling and continue to focus within the footprint of existing infrastructure. In Russia, we encountered several high-grade targets in the Kupol Synergy Zone, which is the 130-kilometer radius around Kupol. At Kayamaivam, the results from drilling have delineated high-grade veins with attractive widths in the Arikvam mineralized structure. The zone of mineralization has been defined across a strike length of approximately 1.4 kilometers with significant further potential at depth and along strike. At Round Mountain, as I mentioned, we encountered encouraging results at Phase W and confirmed con continuation of mineralization beyond the current resource pit shell. We plan to construct an exploration drift this year to continue evaluating the ground potential. At Gold Hill, a new high-grade vein located over 300 meters from the current resource was discovered. We plan to continue to test this new vein and potential further extensions at Gold Hill later in the year. Lastly, at Curlew, the drilling focused on areas around the historic K2 mine site, which is located approximately 35 kilometers from the Kettle River Mill. During the last year, the development of the new underground drifts were completed, leading to the exposure of four new veins, which will allow us to continue underground drilling. Before turning the call back to Paul, I'd like to provide an update on our Lakoiko Restart project and discuss the recent mine life extension. I'm pleased to report the project is expected to finish on time and on budget with modest production expected in the first quarter. Commissioning the plant is well underway and we've started building a crushed ore stockpile. We expect to ramp up production over the first half this year to reach full production levels by mid-year. The addition of the first phase of Peren, combined with a successful mine plant optimization of phase seven has increased life in mine production by 45% to approximately one million ounces. We continue to look for additional opportunities to extend mine life and have begun preliminary discussions with Cadelco, our joint venture partner, about another phase of Peren. With a number of satellite pits on the property, we remain very encouraged that we can continue to extend life at Lokoipa into the late 2020s. And with that, I'll turn the call back to Paul. Thanks, Paul. In summary, our business remains well positioned to deliver on our strong outlook. We have a growing production profile. We expect to generate substantial free cash flow. Our balance sheet is strong. We have an attractive return of capital program. 
our ESG performance consistently ranks well, and we are taking action on climate change. We are strong technically and well positioned to deliver on our projects. And lastly, with the pending addition of Great Bear, our portfolio is in excellent shape to sustain a strong production profile for this decade and into the next. We firmly believe these features, coupled with our attractive valuation, make this the best time to own Kinross shares. With that, operator, I'd like to open the line for questions. Thank you. At this time, if you would like to ask a question, please press star 1 on your telephone. To withdraw your question, press the pound or hash key. Please stand by while we compile the Q&A roster. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Your first question comes from the line of Tyler Lington with J.P. Morgan. Yeah, good morning. Thanks, uh, thanks for taking my question. Um, I guess, you know, Paul, maybe to start, start I, mean, I know there's a lot of sort of uncertainty in moving parts, but just with, you know, sort of Russia and, you know, sanctions, if there, you know, were any sort of, you know, conflict, I mean, do you have a sense or just, you know, some thoughts on how, I guess, it could potentially sort of impact your ability to sell gold from Kubo or then just to proceed, you know, also with the, um, the Udin's feasibility study? Sure. Thanks, Tyler. Um, yeah, look, I, <clears throat> I can't speculate on anything politically. Um, all I can say is we've we've operated there successfully for many years uh, with strong support uh, from the Russian government. Um, we essentially own a Russian business where 98% of our employees are, are Russian. Our procurement is, is majority, majority sourced locally. Um, I'd also remind that because it's a, a camp location that uh, <clears throat> is supplied with a winter ice road, we're fully stocked for everything we need into next year. Um, you know, our philosophy in Russia has always been the same. We, we look after our people. We have world-class environmental standards. We're good in our communities. We pay our taxes, and uh, we think we're quite welcome there, and uh, it's been a great place for us. With respect to the gold sales specifically, um, we do sell gold in Russia to cover our ruble costs. Um, we can sell gold in Russia or out of Russia. It's really uh, at our discretion. <clears throat> so our business, again, for context, it's about 7,000 kilometers away from, uh, from what's going on. Um, the mine has not been impacted to date. and. Uh, We'll, we'll continue operating. No, great. I appreciate that detail. And then um, just switching to the, the cost side, you know, for 2022, I guess do you have a sense um, in terms of how much of your costs, you know, are locked in? I'm guessing sort of, you know, labor is kind of largely sort of fixed at this point. But just I mean, if inflationary pressures were to ease, I mean, can you talk or provide a little bit more detail? maybe in terms of how your, like, fuel, energy, or material costs could sort of potentially benefit, or I don't know if, how much of those are kind of you know, sort of locked in for the year. Yeah, look, I'll start, and maybe, Andrea, you can chime in. I mean, we, I think, as you see in the news every day, we do see, like everyone, inflation is everywhere. Uh, it's going to vary uh, depending upon where we are in the world. For example, you know, is there a flow-through on, on crude, on oil directly or, or not? Uh, we do have hedges in place. Um, I think you will have seen, uh, in terms of our uh, <clears throat> our guidance uh, for this year, we've uh, we've used seven percent inflation assumption on our operating costs. Um, we do think uh, capital could be higher, um, but yeah, certainly uh, we're erring on the side of I think being conservative. But to the extent 
inflation cools or pulls back, uh, we'd see some benefit. Sure. I mean, I can comment on, on kind of hedging levels, and then I don't know, Paul, you want to provide some additional uh, some additional anecdotes. So, so on the fuel side, we're about 60% uh, hedged on our exposures where we can hedge for 2022, and that's at a, a, a rate uh, below $50 a barrel. Um, and then on the currencies, we're, we're typically hedged sort of between 40 and 50% of our exposures for most of our currencies for the current year. We also added uh, hedges in, in Chile this year, and, and that percentage is, is a little bit lower, but uh, as we're just getting started there. Tyler, I'll pick up on a couple points related to other operating costs. Our, many of our consumables, uh, we, we focus on a security supply agreement to make sure that we get what we need, and then the pricing often is tied to rise and fall mechanisms tied to underlying commodity prices. So if, uh, if there is a more transitory impact of inflation, those unit costs will fall. In the case of labor, it's a range. Um, we're seeing higher labor cost pressure in certain places like Russia and Brazil and less than others, but of course it's an across-the-board phenomenon. And as you said, if inflation subsides, we would presume that um, the pressure on labor costs would also subside. So you're, I think you're asking how much of it is tied to general moves. I think a good chunk of it is tied to underlying inflation, underlying commodity prices, and our cost structure would follow those. But it's difficult to predict that beyond a year, and we, we haven't tried to do that in our guidance. No, that's all. Yeah, I completely understand. Um, that's it for me. Thanks so much. Your next question comes from Bahad Tariq with Credit Suisse. Hi, good morning. Thanks for taking my question. Um, just first, just a point of clarification. On the CapEx guidance for 2022 and 2023, around a billion dollars, should we be comparing that to the base case guidance previously of 800 and 700 million, respectively? Uh, well, the 800 and 700 that we um, included with our guidance last year, it was 800 million for 2022 and 700 for 2023. And we always characterize that as um, you know, based on projects that were approved at the time, uh, and and then the exception was a little bit of spending for for Udinsk in there. So, I guess maybe I'll comment first on what happened with 2022. The increase is partly inflation, and then partly uh, additional project approvals and pull forward of spending. And so, in 2023, we haven't factored in additional inflation, but it's starting from a higher base um, as a result of the inflation that we're including for this year. So a couple of the projects that we included in 22 and 23 that were that weren't in the previous profile, we we pulled forward some early work spending at Udinsk to the tune of about 50 million dollars, um, and we've made some mine life extending decisions at places like Lakoipa and Ball that brought some near-term capex into the profile, but it uh, it increased mine life. And lastly, we have a focus on ESG-related spending on items that reduce our carbon profile. And most notably there, Paul mentioned that in his uh, opening remarks as we're, we're proceeding with a solar power plant at Tazius. And we've also made allowance for uh, a connection to a more carbon-friendly grid at, at Udinsk. So it's a combination of inflation, as Andrea said, but also resequencing and optimization in the, uh, in the plan. As, as we said earlier, it's 7% inflation on OPEX in our guidance. In CAPEX, we're seeing 10 to 15% in the first year. And we haven't tried to guess at what it'll be in 23 and 24. Okay. Um, okay. And then in terms of 23 and 24, the CapEx guidance, I believe, includes Udinsk, uh, but excludes Mancho and Lobo Marte. Can you just provide some color on the comfort level to include that CapEx or, or potentially start spending on those projects and then the CapEx ends up being you know, above a billion dollars? I'm just trying to get a sense of you know, how high the CapEx could be in 23 and 24. Thanks. Lobo Marte is an easy one to talk about. The, the construction timeline for Lobo Marte is not within that window, and we will continue to advance permitting studies, but that's a modest number. In the case of Mancho, we're mid-feasibility study, and um, at, towards the end of this year, we intend to put out the results of the study, and if warranted, as I said in my prepared remarks, there, there may be an, uh, an adjustment to CapEx and production. So the 2024 production number does not include Mancho, um, but with the results of our feasibility study, it is possible that we add some production 
for Mancho in 2024, and we would obviously add commensurate capex. We have allowed, though, in our 2022 number for some early works of Mancho. Okay, that's it for me. Thank you. Your next question comes from Josh Wolfson with RBC Capital Markets. Thanks. Good morning. Um, just had a question first for the random management update. Um, I know it, it, I guess it's tough for us to sort of uh, grasp some of the variances because the base case expectation still somewhat outstanding. But if we were sort of looking at that outlook past 2024, is there any sort of volume of production um, you know that you could quantify where we should be thinking about uh, you know Ramanton producing uh, if these issues materialize or continue? So let me uh, I'll take a bit of a higher level view and give a context on Ramanton because we expect a number of questions on this. So we have three or four new facts at uh, Ramanton on the on the negative the zone of influence of that clay layer that led us to have to lay the wall slopes uh, more shallower in the north area, it would appear that the zone of influence of that clay layer now extends more to the west as well. So there will be a more extensive area than we had previously thought where we have to lay the slopes back. However, on the plus side, we've added a million ounces here at phase S, which is a little bit more than we were expecting, and the results are, are a little bit better than we expected. And on the expiration side, we're hitting some really great holes down in phase X. And as we look at phase X, it's, it would certainly be an underground opportunity. If we go to phase X anyway as an underground, it would then make sense to access portions of phase W, the higher grade portions of phase W from an underground. So this is a multivariate optimization where we have to trade off slopes, phase S, how it gets sequenced into the mine plan, and what does a potential underground scenario at X look like? But to answer your question, we're still looking at 250 to 300 at Round Mountain through 22, 23, and into 24, um, and that's what the number baked into our guidance. Out beyond 2025, the level of production will depend on those three things. Do we split phase W, and do we access some of the material underground? So let me just give the the high-level example on that. If we decide to, this is an if, if we decide to access some of phase W from underground, we would do so at a higher cutoff, and there would be fewer ounces in the near term. However, an underground would then allow us to go after ounces in W that are currently outside the $1,200 and indeed the $1,600 pitch shell. So there may be a reduction in production in what were previously going to be high years, but they would be ounces that come with much lower capital development costs, and we would make these decisions on an economic trade-off. So we would look for neutral economics or even improved economics, and we would trade off the capital requirements. But I can't say with any degree of certainty right now because these are subject to the optimization study that we're carrying out. Okay. And, and when you're thinking about the reserves there, I can't remember the exact details, but there was some you know, reconciliation uh, opportunity, if I recall. Is that are these factors or these upside opportunities that were outstanding still available uh, you know going forward or are they baked into the reserve so the reserve includes phase s uh, which is about 150 or so new ounces contained and it also includes phase w on an open pitch shell with the laid back slope so we want to start with that point is if we lay the slopes back to the to the more uh, shallow does it pull the reserve on open but yes it does so the current reserve includes phase W in a $1,200 pitch shell and phase S. Now, some of the other opportunities that we have around now relate to the way we manage the heaps and how we get ounces out of that. Those we cannot classify as reserve, and those are opportunity ounces that we go after on a really a kind of make it up as you go along basis because we drill the wells, we get ounces. It's very difficult to characterize the older parts of those heaps and what kind of gold is in there. So those are not in reserve. And that's actually one of the difficulties for you guys to model around mountains. It's very difficult to say what ounces come out of those heaps. But right now we're still in those heaps. And they're still in those heaps, and we've been getting 40 to 50,000 ounces a year from the heaps. And those are ounces that don't come off the reserve statement. Got it. Okay. Um, and if I can ask one more, on the, on the capital allocation side of things um, and, and looking through the closing of the Great Bear acquisition, um, 
you know, there, there's, I guess there's a different type of uh, opportunity in the sense that there's now uh, debt available that can be repaid. You know, how do you think about the three sort of larger levers of, you know, looking at the dividend or uh, the share buyback uh, or, or, or the debt, um, you know, at, at this point in time? Yeah, thanks. I'll take that, uh, Josh. Look, I, again, as we look forward, we see uh, significant uh, free cash flow uh, you know, on our on our go forward, and uh, we, we actually, I mean, the short answer is we can accommodate all three. Um, we've, we're certainly maintaining our current return of capital, which is our uh, base dividend, and uh, and we've committed to a, a buyback that essentially equates to the dividend. So, call that 300 to you know 320 million a year of return. And then we've also indicated that that uh, the shares that we did issue as part of the Great Bear transaction, uh, we'd like to prioritize uh, buying those back as well. And uh, we're gonna we're gonna look at that on a quarterly basis as we move through the year, uh, looking at the gold price, looking at uh, our cash flow. Uh, but that's certainly an objective is to 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 buy back those shares. And at the same time, we we do think there's ample free cash flow to continue to delever. So um, we're very much committed to the return of capital, and the balance sheet is always a focus. Great. Thank you very much. Your next question comes from Mike Parkin with National Bank. Thanks, guys. Um, just a couple of clarifications. On your budget for 2022, you mentioned you're using $70 per barrel. Does that factor in the hedges that you were mentioning are sub-50? Uh, yeah. Like your, your spot oil price? In the budget, we do factor in the hedge. That is the bottom line. But, um, but yeah, no, it, it's a $70 assumption, and then we bake in the, the hedge benefit. And then we do provide sensitivities as to you know, what a, uh, what changes in oil price do uh, to our overall cost of sales, and that's also factoring in the hedges that are in place. Okay. Uh, and then switching over to the task, is, you know, in terms of your GHG emission reduction target, how, how far does that project get you to that 30%? It's the single biggest lever in our reduction strategy, and happily this project is a uh, a good return project. Um, it takes us um, three or four percent towards our goal here, and it's the first of several. We've, we've got a couple others in the hopper as well, but it's the it's the uh, the most readily available uh, project to us right now. Okay, and then in terms of like a per ounce savings, can you quantify that? Um, On a cost per ounce? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's somewhere in the five to ten dollar an ounce range. It depends on where crude is. Obviously, the higher the crude price is, the better the benefit. So, with crude where it is today, it's at the higher end of that cost range, cost savings range. Okay. Uh, and then just confirming, you know, the Great Bear Resource deal closes. You've mentioned fifty to sixty million for the budget for what you want to drill there, is that going to be completely expensed or will that be a capitalized spend? I think that's expensed. It'll be expensed, yeah. yeah. At this point. Okay. Uh, and then just the last one for me. So it seems like Round Mountain is going to have potentially a significant underground component to it. Uh, is that still going to allow the mill there to be full and is it a kind of a combination of still high grade ounces coming out of some open pit operation as well as topped up with very good grades coming out of underground or am i thinking so of we don't, we don't, yeah so what what we have right now is we've had a historically large mill grade stockpiles around mountain and we have mill material coming up from different parts of the pit so for example phase s is 50 50 It'll be half mill, half heap leach. Phase W, mined as an open pit, is almost all heap leach, and that goes on to the new north dedicated pad that we built. And phase X, what we're seeing in there, given the grades, it would be predominantly mill ore. So between S, 
if there's an underground component W and X as an underground, if it pans out, we would be able to keep the mill full. Okay. All right. That's it for me, guys. Thanks so much. Again, if you wish to ask a question, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad. Again, that's star 1 to ask a question. Your next question comes from Greg Barnes with TD Securities. Yeah, thank you. I apologize, Paul, tomorrow. I'm going to back around now. In my model, I've got 2025 and 2026 at over 400,000 ounces a year. That sounds like that's not going to happen. You're probably right because our two scenarios for those years are either we lay the slopes back to the full extent of the shallow recommendations right now, and giving our stripping rate constraints, we would not be able to access the grade in time to hit those numbers. The alternate scenario is a resequencing of the mine plan that brings S forward and dives for underground at W. Because of the higher cutoff going underground, it would also depress the production level. So. I, I'm going out on a bit of a gut feel limb here. We've done some rough analysis on this, but most likely those high production years will not materialize at that 400 plus range, but we're still targeting things in the 300. Okay, so to maintain that 2.5 million ounce a year production level, how, what will offset the lower production at, uh, at Round Mountain? So when we give that two and a half million on average for the 10-year production profile, we do allow ourselves some buffer, some puts and takes in the portfolio there. And um, writ large, what comes into the portfolio there is we've got Udins coming online in 2025. We've got Mancho production. And as I said in the prepared remarks, we've extended Lacoipa. So we have enough flexibility in the portfolio that at this stage we don't feel that the 2.5 Averages put at risk by these resequencing of Round Mountain. Now, one of the um, one of the silver linings here in this whole Round Mountain story is we're, we've now got inventory in front of us to push mine life out into the 2030s. So, a, a major silver lining here at Round Mountain is these ounces are generally deferred, except those. So, here's an important point: if we have a higher cutoff to go underground for portions of Phase W, absolutely, the base case we're still going to go after a bunch of Phase W is an open pit. But the deeper, higher grade portions, if we use a higher cutoff, we would lose answers that were previously reserved in the open pit shell, but we would be able to push further beyond the $1,200 shell and pick up ounces that were previously uneconomic at $1,200. So we still see this as a ounce neutral optimization exercise, but with a deferred component. And potentially with capital benefits. Yeah, and, and yeah, that's a good point. It would be a lot lower stripping, and it would certainly help our greenhouse gas profile given the uh, the open pit component at the ground. And this may be an unfair question, Paul, but the big bump in 2023 to 2.8 million ounces, does it make sense to smooth that out somewhat and just be you know, 2.7, 2.6 and continue that? Or is that just not doable given the mine plan? Well, we spent a huge amount of time debating that very question. Like, do we go... 2.65, 2.7, 2.7, but it's actually not the right economic decision. We want to prioritize the returns, and fundamentally what drives the big number in 23 is Tazius is going to have a really good year, and Lacoipa is going to have a really good year with the silver component. So it, we'd basically be deferring cash flow, and it just wasn't the right thing to do from an optimization exercise. And um, as we did this year, when we get into next year, we will refine our guidance one year at a time. But your question's a good one. I mean, we could have goal sought flatter production, but in the event where we landed is uh, just pulling that cash flow when we could get it, particularly as we head into a, what appears to be a high gold price environment in the near term. Just a question for Paul Rollins. I just want to confirm that at Coupon, you do not have to sell the gold to the Russian Central Bank anymore, right? We, we never have. No, it's strictly... Okay. Up to us, and, and as I said in the, the previous question, typically we sell to cover all of our ruble costs or needs in country, but um, there's no restrictions. And the last time you know, Russia did invade Crimea, there were sanctions, and you were not impacted, as far as I recall. Correct. That's correct. In fact, ironically, the 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 impact was the devaluation of the ruble, which actually enhanced our margins. Right. Okay. 
That's it to me. Thank you. Your next question comes from Mike Gentleman with Bank of America. Well, uh, good morning, Paul. Paul and Andrea. I've got a question for uh, Paul Tamori going back to Round Mountain. That's the first question on Round Mountain, right? And uh, hey, Zex, uh, Paul, uh, I remember back, I think it was 91 or 90, Echo Bay had a tour for the analysts of Round Mountain. And they were talking about phase X back then. One of the geologists said 5 million ounces, higher grade material. Uh, and But because gold was at 300, uh, and there was, they thought there might be ground condition issues, uh, the rock not being competent, and water issues. For those reasons, they weren't going to go after it. Obviously, they had a big open pit with lots of re reserves. And uh, so I'm just wondering, uh, is that what do you think of all the, those numbers and views from uh, a long time ago, 30 years ago? Thanks. So 30 years ago, even if you go, say, 15 years ago, both phase W and X were something called deep northwest. They were combined uh, underground. And the, the inventories you talked about, those were, they weren't NI-43-101 inventories. They were conceptual inventories. But we, we have millions of ounces in resource at phase X, and those are in an open pitch shell. What has changed since then, in fact, recently, is, as I said in my prepared remarks, we've had some really good exploration success. Now, let me uh, give a perspective here. Phase W and X are actually separated by a downdraw fault. Phase W is characterized with more disseminated material with some high-grade pockets, whereas in phase X we get into more structurally controlled, higher grade, much more underground-friendly type mineralization. And if you look in our press release, you'll see some of the results there with 10, 20 meter widths, 5 to 10 grams. So as we get more resolution on what the mineralization looks like, we are, we are liking the potential to go underground there. And especially with gold price, um, where it is at 1200 or 1400 or 1600, it certainly makes the underground look more attractive. And it, as I said earlier, it may push some of the open pit material into an underground, and that's subject to our optimization. Um, so overall, I think that the, the excitement around Phase X is greater than it was two years. It was greater than it was 15 years ago. And certainly, it's come into much better resolution than it was 30 years ago. It, it's, a, it's a prolific system around mountains. It's a very unique deposit, and uh, it, it continues to give uh, almost sometimes beyond expectation. Okay, great. Thanks for that. Look forward to the next... Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.